I want you to come with me, please, to the sixth book of the Old Testament, the book of Joshua. Book of Joshua and the second chapter. Whenever you get that, just hold your place there. Book of Joshua, chapter 2. Now, the first uh, three women that we have looked at in this series, Notorious Women of the Bible, uh, we found out that the first three were, were bad right from the beginning and remained bad right to the end. They started out bad, they ended up bad. In fact, there was no redeemable features in their lives that we could see. And uh, thankfully, not all of the notorious women of the Bible were like that. Some started out bad and ended up good. And this is one of the ones we want to talk about this morning, Rahab the harlot. She was one such woman who started out bad, but thankfully ended up good. And so this story especially has got a wonderful happy ending. You love happy endings, don't you? Well, some of you do anyway. Look at your faces, not sure. But anyway, this has got a great, wonderful ending, in fact. Now, in chapter 2 of Joshua, uh, Joshua is standing the other side of the Jordan, about to enter into the promised land to Canaan and to take the land that was promised to them. Now, 40 years previous to this, Moses was also in the same position, standing across the Jordan, waiting to take the land. But he sent out 12 spies, as you would do, to see the strengths and the weaknesses of those you were going to conquer. And after a while, the spies come back, and you know the story how that 10 of those spies come back with an evil report, the Bible says. Uh, they said that we saw giants there, the children of Anak, and we were like grasshoppers in their sight, and they were sorely afraid. And they said that we not able to take the land. That was their conclusion. However, the other two spies, Joshua and Caleb, came back with a good report, and they said the land truly is flowing with milk and honey. And they brought back large clumps of grapes from Ashkol. And they said that we are well able to take this land. God promised us the land and we can take it. Nevertheless, the multitude believed the report of the ten. And so they, in their unbelief, God got them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until every man of fighting age and above had died off. And eventually, of course, they all died off, and a new generation was born in the wilderness, and that new generation now has come to the Jordan, and uh, they have heard the law again. The law has been read to them again. And Deuteronomy is Deuterus Nomos, which means the second reading of the law. And uh, now Joshua is about to take the land, but first of all, even though he has been there himself personally 40 years before this, but a lot of things can change in 40 years, so he wants to know how is the land today? What are their strengths? What are the weaknesses? What size are their army, their city, so forth and so on? And so this time he sends in spies, but he, he, he remembers what happened before, so this time he only sends in two spies. And so that's where we join the story then in Joshua chapter 2. So let's begin to read uh, from here. Now Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from the Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. Especially Jericho. Jericho was the first 
major uh, city that came to. It would be the first major uh, stumbling block possibly they could meet. So they'd have to deal very wisely and very diligently with how they're going to take this great fortified city. They could see it in the distance from where they were. And uh, they saw the great walls. By the way, these walls, our archaeologist tells us that these walls uh, were 30 feet high. That's about three times the height of the current building room you're sitting in right now. So that's very high. Not only that, but they, they were built with double walls. And the outer wall was six foot thick. The inner wall was about 12 foot thick. And the distance in between was somewhere between 12 and 15 feet. And in fact, it was so strong and stout, these walls, that they could build houses on top of them. And so these walls were 30 feet high and 30 plus feet broad. So these were mighty bulwarks. And it seemed to be this city was impregnable. Now remember that these Israelites had traveled in the desert for 40 years. So they weren't coming out of that well-equipped no battering rams or anything like that. And so they needed God on their side, and they believed God was on their side. And uh, so that was Jericho, a great city in that day, a heavily fortified city. And so they went, and they came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. Now, I would imagine that having swam the swollen Jordan River. This was the springtime of the year and the snows of the hills of Lebanon would have overflowed the banks of Jordan. But having made it across there, uh, I would imagine that they would probably dress up as traders because this would be a great trading city. And, uh, and of course, they would go to the gate of the city in disguise, hoping that no one would recognize that they were outsiders, particularly they were Hebrews. And that... Uh, they would want to find out what would be the best place to spy the city. Well, they could see houses on top of the city, on top of the city walls, and that would be a wonderful place. So they asked, as traders would often do, coming from a long journey, well, where's the nearest brothel? And so they'd say, well, the best one really is Rahab the Harlot. That's her house right up there in that city wall. And so that's where they would go because there would be a lot of tales told there. And so it seemed the ideal place. And they would go there hoping, of course, that no one would see them. Now, some commentators say, when it says Rahab the harlot, that actually it means Rahab the innkeeper. But having checked the word harlot up in several lexicons and so forth, I don't see that as a possibility at all. Uh, this was not a bed and breakfast she was running. It was a brothel she was running. So let's just leave it at that. She was a prostitute, and this was the brothel that she was running. And so they went there, and they lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. Now, it was well known within the city, as we'll see in a moment or two, that the Israelites were out there somewhere that they were heading towards them. And the king was not stupid. He would realize that very obviously they would try to send spies ahead because that's exactly what he would do if he was coming to take the city. And so he had people out and about, particularly at the city gates, looking for anything unusual. And even though these two spies were probably disguised, but maybe, maybe it was their accent. Maybe it was their different look. Something about them alerted 
somebody that ran to the king and says, hey, there's two spies that have gone to the house of Rahab the harlot. And so, king of Jericho sent, saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. Now, here in this action, it's revealing something that's going on in the heart and in the life of Rahab the harlot. She didn't have to do this. In fact, this was a very dangerous thing to do. If she was found out doing this, this would be treated as treachery. And without question, uh, she would be killed for being a traitor uh, and being a collaborator with the enemy. So something had to be going on in her heart. Uh, and we'll see in a moment some of her thoughts because she expresses them. But I think that whenever she met these two men, I think that immediately she began to see that these two men were not like any other men that had ever entered into her home. As soon as she saw these men, they were different because she knew men and she had absolutely no respect for men whatsoever. Why should you? Because she was only used and abused by men probably for many, many years. And so whenever she looked at these two men, they looked very different. They didn't look at her the way men looked at her. Whenever they looked at her, she didn't feel dirty. She didn't feel that she was something that to be used and abused. And probably they began to talk to her. And with the feelings that were already going on in her heart, she knew that something's going on here. And, and these, are, these men are entirely different. These are good men. These are not the usual men that would come into my establishment. And so something is stirring within her heart here. And I believe this was the work of God moving upon her heart. And so she took these two men and she hid them. And so she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Now, I don't want to spend any time on the ethics of the fact that she lied here. Now remember, this was a life and death situation for this woman. She did not want to betray them. But by not betraying them, she was risking her very life. Also, being a harlot and being a Canaanite pagan woman, she probably hadn't much compunction about telling lies. There was no big deal in that. So we have to understand the time and the position and the environment she was in. God doesn't actually criticize her for lying here. In fact, He commends her for her faith, as we'll see a little bit later on in her readings. However, she is very crafty, as we say. She's smart. She's no dozer. And she knows exactly how to handle men and what to say. And so she tells them this story. But notice where she hides them. She hides them up on the roof among the stalks of flax. Now, what does flax make? What do you make from flax? 
Pardon? Linen. Linen. And later on we read that she had a, a scarlet cord. So I wonder was this something that she did as a day job? We know what her night job was. I wonder was this her day job? Because this was the time of the barley and flax harvest and she was drying it on her roof probably to make some cloth and dye it maybe to sell to some of her customers that would come in, these traders, and make some extra money on the side. If that is the case, it would be interesting because you remember when ever the study of the, the, uh, the other woman, the good woman of the Bible, uh, how that we talked about Lydia in the New Testament, who was a seller of purple, who became the first Christian convert in Europe. Now, wouldn't it be interesting if this woman would be the first Gentile convert to Judaism if she was a, a seller of scarlet? Who knows? Just throwing it out there. Can't prove it. But anyway, that's where she hid them. Then the men pursued them by the road to Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to the men, Now listen, this is one of the greatest confessions of faith you're going to find from anybody in the Old Testament. In fact, it's so good that it's spoken off twice in the New Testament by the writer to the Hebrews and by the Apostle James. So we need to listen carefully to what she's going to say here. And remembering who's saying this, a pagan prostitute. And yet God had reached down in His mercy and had stirred something of faith in her heart for her to be able to say what she's going to say to these two men. So she said, I know that the Lord, Jehovah Adonai, the one true and the living God, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the, dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. That was 40 years ago plus. So that story has percolated all the way down through history to her ears. She maybe heard it. I don't know, maybe at school, maybe it was part of that ancient history of other lands and other nations. But something about that story had triggered something in her heart, maybe even as a young person, and it's still there. And now that she knows the Israelites are coming to her door, it's stirred up again. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted Neither did there remain any more courage in any one because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now that is a powerful profession of faith in the living God. And God will take faith wherever He finds it. No matter where He finds it. And no matter in whom he finds it. And thank God this story is here. There's a lot of people out there, particularly in lands 
that are not familiar with the gospel. And God can work on their hearts. Do you know that right now in the Muslim nations that God is coming to Muslims in dreams and in visions of Jesus Christ and they're going to look out somebody to explain what this is and they're getting saved. God is finding people all over and He's stirring their hearts. So let's not limit God on how He does things. And so you can see there that here she is, knowing that this living God has sent His people to take her land, the land of Canaan. And she said, not only that, but everybody here knows it. Everybody here knows it. But here's the amazing thing. Everybody knew it, and everybody was afraid, but they didn't do anything about it. So knowing about Christ, knowing that one day He's going to come to judge this world and not doing anything about it, it's not going to get you anywhere. And there's lots of people like that. There's people in church choirs. There's people who go to church every single Sunday. And they know that Jesus is the Son of God. They know He was born of a virgin. They know He rose again from the dead. They know He died on the cross for our sins. They know He's going to come back someday to this earth. They know all of that but they're not saved because they've never acted on it. And we'll see more about that in a moment or two. I'll show you that in Scripture in a moment. So here she is. Her belief, her faith in the living God, more than all the other gods that she's ever served as she grew up as a child. Remember, the Canaanites were the most pagan, they had the most vile practices in fact, we learned in the story of Jezebel how that they even had temple prostitutes. Whether she was one when she was younger, we don't know. Or whether she's done this as a business, we don't know. But that was the culture of the day. Awful. We even know that they sacrificed their children to Baal and to Moloch, these horrible gods. They even, parents even sacrificed their children to them. And yet in the midst of all of that paganism and all of that terrible false religion, here's one woman in this whole city who's now believing in the living God. And not only that, here's what she says in verse 12. Now therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my Father's house and give me a true token. Make me a promise. And spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. Not only does this woman want to be saved, she wants her whole family saved. She knows, listen to me, she knows that the judgment of God is about to fall on her city. The midnight hour is about to be struck. She knows that with all of her heart. And she wants her family to be saved. Would to God that we as Christian believers, some, many of us are many, many years, wish we had the passion and wish we had the understanding and the desire to see our loved ones saved as much as this woman had. We believe Christ is coming back. We believe this world is set for judgment. We believe that with all of our hearts. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen soon. Sooner rather than later. 
What are we doing about our loved ones? What are we doing about our unsaved loved ones? Do we talk to them? Do we even pray for them? Do we go to them? Do we witness to them? Why do you say, well, you know, if I did it, I don't know what they would think or what they would say. Listen, do you want them to go to hell? Do you want them to wait till the day of judgment comes and they'll be lost forever? I don't think so. Well, somebody else might talk to them. Why should somebody else bother to talk to them? You don't want to talk to them. Hmm? Say, David, you're been a bit hard this morning. You're hitting me right between the eyes this morning. Listen, they're lost. They're going to go to hell. A lost eternity forever unless somebody tells them that the judgment of God is coming. Flee from the wrath to come, the Bible says. Well, how are they going to do that if they don't know it's coming? This lady knew it was coming. Not only did she want to flee from the wrath to come, she wanted her family to be saved too. And so her first concern is my family. She wasn't so much caring about the whole city. It's my family. I'm, I'm, that's, that's what I want to see it. I just work on my family. There's not much time left. She was thinking, I need to work on my family. And so the man answered her, Our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, and she dwelt on the wall. I wonder how many people in that wall had a 30-foot rope underneath their bed. My guess is that's not the first person she ever let down over that wall. Maybe somebody's husband whose wife was coming up the ladder. Hmm? Or maybe some politician in the city. Or maybe some city mayor or somebody. But she had that rope and she let them down over the wall. And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide, them, hide there three days until the pursuers have returned, and afterwards you may go your way. And she's a smart cook of this, isn't she? Smart lady. So the man said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home, so shall it be that whoever goes outside the doors of the house into the street, his blood shall be upon his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath which, we made, uh, which you made us swear. Then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. Now, I don't think we would be stretching our imagination too much if we believed that these two spies, remembering what they've heard the law all over again in their history, remembering how that when the children of Israel was in the land of Egypt, and how God was punishing Pharaoh, how that he was sending those plagues upon him. And the very last one you remember was death in every household for the firstborn. And how that God came to the children of Israel dwelling in the land of Goshen and says, listen, the death angel is going to pass over, but you take this lamb, you kill the lamb, and you put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and lintels of your house and stay under that roof, stay underneath the blood of the lamb. And if you do, the death angel will come and he'll pass over your house. Hence the meaning of the Passover. 
So no doubt in my mind that that's what they remembered and that was the best thing they could give as an illustration to her and say, hey, listen, put that scarlet cord, get it outside your window so that whenever we come, we'll look up and we'll see that cord and that'll be a sign of the blood and you're underneath the blood, you'll be saved. And every one of your family will be saved, but they have to be underneath the blood. Do you get the message? It's the only thing's going to save us, isn't it? It's the only thing that's going to save our family. And each individual one of them had to be under. They had to be responsible to come under that roof. Now, I can imagine that Rahab would go to their family. This wasn't the family home. This was her brothel. I can imagine she would go to her father, her mother, her brothers, her sisters, her, her nephews, her nieces, her cousins, her uncles, her aunts, her grannies and grandas. She'd run all of her extended family, and one by one, she'd sit them down and tell them, now listen, judgment's coming. Got to flee from the wrath to come. It's coming, and it's coming fast. I've met these two men. I tell you, this is for sure. This is going to happen. And the only way you're going to be saved is getting underneath this bloodline here. You've got to get underneath the cord, the scarlet cord. You've got, to get, you've got to get to my house. It's the only way you're going to be saved. Now, they could have laughed at her. They could have said, well, hey, listen, are you going to listen to you? Look what you've done with your life. You're a right mess. Look at you. You're an embarrassment of the whole family. I mean, they could have made all kinds of excuses. They could have said, you're mad. You're nuts. Look at our city. 30 foot walls, 30 feet wide. Who's ever going to take this city? They could have made every kind of excuse underneath the book, but they didn't. Somehow she persuaded them. Somehow she persuaded them. Now, whenever we go to our loved ones, it needs more than just us talking to them. It needs the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? So we need to pray for the Holy Spirit. We talk to them, we'll open up their eyes, and they will see what's going to come. And so that's what she did. And that's what they did. Thank God. Did you notice where the, they said that you've got to put the cord out the window in full public view? Christianity is a private thing, but it's not a personal thing. Sorry, it's a personal thing, but it's not a private thing. It's very personal. Each one of us has got saved. We've come different ways. We have a different testimony. It's personal to us, but it's not a private thing. We've got to share it. This was on the window where everybody could see. Now, not everybody could understand why it was there, but it was on the window to be seen. Our testimony, our life as believers has got to be seen. There's got to be a scarlet cord on our window. We can't hide our light under a bushel. We can't wait to see if somebody's going to guess are we saved or not saved. We've got to have our life living in such a way they'll know there's something different than that and they'll be interested to find out because the scarlet cord will be on our window. Amen. And they depart, then they departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers sought them all along the way, did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain and crossed over. And they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. Now before we move on, and because of time, you can just, for those of you who take notes, Hebrews 11.31, the writer to the Hebrews, be it Paul or whoever, uses Rahab as an example of faith. 
Isn't it interesting? In that great faith chapter, the great hall of fame of the faith of the ancient believers, isn't it interesting that there's only two women mentioned by name, Sarah, wife of Abraham, and Rahab the harlot. So the writer of the Hebrews recognized that her faith was something that needed to be shown. And not only that, then when you go to the book of James, James 2.25, you see that the apostle James uses Rahab as an example of works. Because he's talking about, you know, faith without works is dead. So if you say you've got faith, then I'm saying, well, I want to see it. So let me see how it works in your life, and then I'll believe you've got faith. So the writer of the Hebrews and the writer to Apostle James, they're not at loggerheads over faith and works. One's talking about the root of faith, and one's talking about the fruit of faith. All right? And the two's got to go together, because faith without works is dead. James is absolutely right. And so they find it in this example of Rahab the harlot. And that same example ought to be in our lives. If we say we have faith in Christ, well, then there's got to be some outworking of that, hasn't there? There's got to be some example in our lives that we have faith in Christ. We, we, there's got to be good works come out of that that flows from our faith in Christ. So moving on quickly. In chapter 3, uh, Israel crosses the Jordan. In chapter 4, they lay the memorial stones so that another generation will be reminded of what happened. In chapter 5, this second generation all now has to be circumcised. And then, the time you come into chapter 6, now they're ready uh, to take the land. But notice what it says. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. Now again, some commentators, and I don't know where they get this, uh, it's a bit fanciful. They, they believe that uh, whenever the children of Israel, when they're marching around this city, that the people of Jericho was on the wall shouting at them and laughing at them, pointing at them, making fun of them. I don't believe that for one second. Not be, because of what Rahab the harlot said. These people, their hearts are melting in fear because of you. And the city was shut up. So that they were genuinely afraid of what was coming. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. And then he told them what they were to do. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go around the city once. This you shall do six days. And the seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall come to pass when they make a long, loud blast with the ram's horn. Then you will hear the sound of the trumpet that all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, every man straight before him. So there was the strategy. Didn't sound a very good strategy militarily, but this was from the Holy Spirit. And Joshua knew he had heard the voice of God and that this would work. And even though it didn't look right, and perhaps didn't feel right to those marching around those soldiers, but it was right. I wonder when this was happening. I wonder was Rahab and her family looking out the window? Huh? 
I wonder what she said. I make sure that rope's out. You make sure. Don't, hey, children, get away from that rope. Come on. Leave that rope alone. Don't swing on that rope. She was very careful. And I wonder if they all looking out the window. And I wonder did the two spies, because they were so, I wonder when they were marching around, did they look up and say, look, there's the card. But anyway, they're marching around. Verse 15, it came to pass in the seventh day that they rose early in the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. And on that day only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take up the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. Then it goes on, verse 20. So the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. And the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. Can you imagine that every part of that great wall fell down flat except the part where Ahab's house was on. That had to be a miracle, hadn't it? The only part that stood was the part of the house with the scarlet cord. Now, when the day of judgment does come to this world, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And it's all going to fall. And only those who are underneath the house with the scarlet cord will stand. Now we've seen how quickly what men are depending on can fall. Just a few years ago, the Southern Irish government were bragging that they would soon have one of the world's richest, be one of the world's richest nations. There's no laughing now. There's no boasting now. There's no bragging anymore. Because it's broke. Busted flush. In just a very short space of time, it all fell. So no matter how big the bulwarks that man stand on and say, we are, cannot be defeated, that we're here, Look at us. Look how strong we are. It's all going to fall except the house with the scarlet cord. Go into the harlot's house from there. Bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. And so they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. That would just be for a little period until this was done and dusted. 
There'd be a few more little things that would have to go through to be brought into the camp. But they would be brought into the camp okay. And he burned the city and all that was in it with fire and only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron and he put it into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers of whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Ah. Now that had been the end of the story. That would have been a happy enough ending. But it isn't the end of the story. It gets a whole lot better. <laughs> it gets a whole lot better. And many of you know what I'm talking about. In Matthew's Gospel, the very first chapter, Matthew here is writing the gospel of the kingdom. And of course, he's talking about the king and his genealogy. And he's tracing them all back to David, King David. And in that genealogy, with all those begots and begots, it says in verse 5, that Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, the self-same Rahab. And Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. And Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. Little did she know when she had those two spies that her great, great, great grandson would be the king of Israel. Greatest king that Israel ever had. And that she would be in the lineage of Christ. That God would honor her far above anything she ever could imagine. Now, Salmon. In First Chronicles 2, 11, you don't need to turn to this, but Salmon there is called Salma, but it's Salmon. And it says that he was a son of a prince, a prince of Judah. Now, we can't say for sure because we don't know. It would be lovely to think that he was one of those two spies. That would be nice, wouldn't it? That would be very romantic, wouldn't it? But we don't know that for sure. But what we do know for sure was that he was a son of a great prince. A man of sterling character. A very wealthy man. And somehow or other... He met Rahab, having heard all the story, and fell in love with her. And irregardless of her black, dark past, he took her to be his wife. And from that union, a little boy was born called Boaz. And Boaz grew up to be a very very wealthy man indeed in his own right. We're almost finished. You know the story in the book of Ruth, how that Naomi and her husband Elimelech, her two sons Malon and Kilion, how they went to the land of Moab because there was famine in the land of Israel. There's no bread in Bethlehem, the house of bread, no bread in the house of bread. 
And so they were destitute. They went to Moab, and when they went there, uh, her two boys married two Moabite ladies, Ruth and Orpah. And in the process of time, her husband Elimelech died, her two sons died. And then she heard there was food back in Israel, and she wanted to go back. And she was angry, and she was bitter because she felt God had forsaken her, had let her down, all the rest of it. Her name means pleasant. Naomi means pleasant. She went back. She says, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. I'm bitter because God let me down. When she got there, you remember how Ruth came back with her? She tried to dissuade her to come back, tried to dissuade both of them. Orpah stayed with her family, back to her gods. Ruth says, no, I'm going to follow you, and your God will be my God, and so forth. Where you die, I'll die. Thereby I'll be buried. Wonderful statement. Whenever they got there, they were penniless. So part of the law in those days was the law of kinsman redeemer. If a man died and he was bereft of any family, there was nobody to carry on his name, that his widow could go to a near relative of his, a brother or someone, an uncle or whoever, or near, the nearest relative, and if they were single and if they could afford it, to redeem them, to buy them back, to marry them, and to maybe, if they had sold some land that was her husband's, to buy that land back, because land was very important in those days. And so she went back, and she was looking for a kinsman redeemer. And lo and behold, Boaz happened to be a relative, and a very rich one too. So old Naomi match mix, match mix, match made <laughs> Ruth with Boaz. And without getting into the whole story, you'll find then that, uh, well, let me read just Ruth chapter 2, a couple of verses. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go into the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I, find, I may find favor. She said, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now, you know how then that Boaz, Ruth caught his eye and she made, made inquiries, who is, who is this young woman? And he made special provision for her with the reapers because any unreaped grain was to lie there for the poor to come along after the reapers up the furrows and they could get them and catch them in their little apron. So he says, make sure you put some handfuls of purpose, deliberately put some extra grain there so that this young girl will get them. And, uh, and so something was stirring in his heart. He was falling in love. And she began to realize that. And she told Naomi. And Naomi says, wonderful. Come on, let's get to it. He's a rich relative. So you pop the question, as it were. Tell him to be our kinsman redeemer. And uh, that goes down into chapter 3. And... Uh, so way down in verse, well, verse 8. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself. And there was a woman lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? So she said, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. In other words, hey, marry me because you be my kinsman redeemer. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people in my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I, 
Stay this night, and in the morning it will be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, I will perform the duty for you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. So, chapter 4, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, a close, the close relative of the, whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Come inside, friend. Sit down here. So he came inside and sat down. And then he took the ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And they sat down, as witnesses that would be. And he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Because of her poverty, she sold the land. So the big thing would be get the land back again. Uh, and I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. So you get first refusal. That was the law. And he said, I will redeem it. Because this time he's only thinking about the land. And that sounded attractive to him enough. But then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead throughout his inheritance. Now, that put a new slant in things. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. Ah. He's willing to buy back the land, but he didn't want to marry the Moabite. Hmm. See, that would get into the bloodline. And he wasn't about to have that. Because he was a Jew, he was a Hebrew. And he didn't want to stain the bloodline with this Moabite. So he says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. So you redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. It was the custom in former days in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took of his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal and Boaz said to the elders and all the people, your witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilon's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren, from his people at the gate, your witnesses this day. Huh. Now, isn't this interesting? Boaz had absolutely no qualms whatsoever about marrying the Moabite. Because his mother was a Canaanite. And she'd been a harlot. And in your history. And you knew how godly and good she had turned out as a mother. All of his life, she only ever was godly and good. So he overlooked all of that and said, This is a virtuous woman. Even though she's a Moabite, she's a virtuous woman. And she's following the true and living God. I'll marry her. Isn't that nice? You see? And you know, God was not averse about allowing Rahab the harlot to be in the genealogy of his son. 
Remember I told the story about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? And how Jesus' disciples, <coughs> they didn't even want to go into Samaria. But Jesus no qualms taught the Samaritan woman at all, whatsoever. Whether Jew or Gentile, no matter what the history was, he reached out to all men and all women. And so they got married. And they had a little child called Obed. And then Obed grew up. He got married. He had a child called Jesse. Jesse grew up. He got married. Of course, they had more children than this. And then his seventh son was David. And Jesus Christ is David's greater son. And it all began with a harlot. And faith rose up in her heart to follow the true and the living God. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it great that someone with such a history could end up with such a glorious future? Isn't that good? So, regardless of your history, in Christ you can have a wonderful, glorious future. Because when you come to Christ and your sins are forgiven and you're washed in the blood of the Lamb, as far as I'm concerned, your history is history. is history. It's gone. I'm a new creature in Christ. All things have passed away. All things have become new. My name's in the book of life. That's a great future, isn't it? So all of you in Christ, regardless of your past, you've got a glorious future ahead in Jesus. You've got all eternity in Christ to enjoy this wonderful inheritance we have in the Savior. Amen? Let's pray.